Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we talked to former world chess champion Garry Kasparov about the risks and rewards of artificial intelligence. This week, we hear from an academic who has been investigating the impact of mobile technology on the lives of children and adolescents. Children have a lot of needs that the phone really could deliver, but we have some evidence that children are looking for health information or for study information or for local community information. What we don't have yet is evidence that they're finding it. That's the voice of Sonia Livingston, Professor of Psychology at the LSE in London. She came into the FT studio recently to talk to my colleague, Madhumita Mergia, about her book, The Class, Living and Learning in the Digital Age. It's been a few years now since you wrote your book, The Class, but it seems like everything in there is still so relevant to kids these days. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this anthropological study that you conducted? Yes, I'd be delighted to, and thank you for asking. It was, in a way, a crazy project with my co-author, Julian Sefton-Green, to try and spend over a year in the lives of a group of year nine. So they were 13 turning 14 in the year that we were with them. And we really wanted to get as much into their lives and see how digital media were being used in school, used at home, adopted by them, embraced by them very often, and what kinds of challenges were emerging. So it was a very in-depth year with these 13-year-olds. When I reported a story in a much shorter timescale, I found that kids can be really, really honest, but it takes time for them to trust you as an adult. What were your top takeaways and how did you find it trying to get into their online lives? I think it helped that we positioned ourselves initially in the school, but not from the school. And kids like to test you out. So they told us things early on and then watched to see, would we tell their parents? Would we tell their teachers? And we didn't. And then... I think a kind of a comfort grew among them as they saw us in the dinner queue and hanging out in the playground and sitting at the back of the class on those sometimes quite small chairs. And I think they just got used to us and they saw us as a bit of an outside, trustworthy voice. They knew that we were seeing a lot of their lives. We were looking at them and very often parents and teachers who are really the key adults in children's lives they're kind of looking at them with a purpose to see has something been done homework schoolwork washing up whatever and we were much more in the background what were they thinking about what were they worried about and I think they really came to trust that. What surprised you the most about this generation considering that they've grown up online? Well, I suppose for me the really big thing was the way in which they often wanted to turn away from the technology. And I say that at the same time as acknowledging that they completely loved the technology and they always had their phone in their hand and when they'd go home, the first thing they might do is turn on a computer and start gaming or something. But at the same time, there was a kind of pulling away and the pulling away, I think, was because parents and teachers are also getting quite in kids' face in terms of how they go online. So the school, for really good reasons, was trying to use technology a lot for educational purposes, but also trying to track the kids' learning and quantify the kids' learning in various ways. And we could see the ways in which kids want their space. You know, they wanted the technology to be theirs and in their voice and for their experiences and 
so they could kind of manage its privacy and intimacy themselves. So they didn't want a blog from teachers in that space and they didn't want parents looking over their shoulder worrying about bullying. So sometimes, even though they'd have the chance to be constantly online, we would be with the kids and they wouldn't have any technology with them and they'd just be talking because that was unmonitored and that was really private from adult worries and intrusions and people checking up on them. What patterns did you find in terms of their social behaviours online? What was unique about what they were doing online compared to maybe people in their 20s, like my age or even older generations? Well, often teenagers are the kind of leading edge of experimentation. And even over the adolescent years, you can kind of see a change. So 13 is the kind of peak of, I want to be part of the group. I want to know what everyone else is doing. I want to have a way of monitoring the group. And this generation can see what all their friends are doing in the way that I think we've never been able to do before in history. They can see the groups that they're not part of. They can see the events that they're not going to. They can see how their friend connects to everybody else. And I think that's really new. Is that both positive Mm. and negative? Are they comparing Mm. themselves a lot more? I think that kind of builds up and I think there's that growing pressure there, that sense that they are watched and it's kind of known whether they're part of things and they have this fear of missing out and so on. But at the same time, you could sort of hear each child finding their own voice, like their own rationale. So the gamer really wanted to be in the game and to know what was happening in the game, but wasn't bothered that he wasn't on Instagram or wasn't part of that social network. You know, one was really into Tumblr and building a kind of private world that was really hers and sort of against the sense that she had to join in with everyone else. And there were lots of individual stories And some with younger siblings who were still, in a way, kids at 13, you know, not really part of that. Everyone's got to be sharing and networking together. Some were really into music. And so there would be different ways they're absorbed into that world, but it wasn't all into the same world. You know, adults often say they're all being judged, they're being looked at, they're becoming so body conscious. They are, but it doesn't define them. It doesn't sum them up. They have their own spaces as well. And do you think that they're able to discover their unique identities more easily through social media because they're connecting with people they might not meet in their neighbourhood or in their school? Maybe. I went back and I interviewed some of them a bit later when they'd gone through adolescence. And even though when you talk to a 13-year-old, they are often quite articulate about what they think and feel, when they look back on themselves, they said, oh my God, I was in such a confusion. That was such a weird time of uncertainty and changing. And even by the end of our fieldwork year, someone who had defined themselves in a particular way might have changed it. So it's really a time of forming identity, but they talk very confidently at each of those stages. The big worry for adults is obviously all of the nefarious aspects of social media, and that includes bullying and grooming, these kinds of things. So what did you hear in terms of their perspective? And then what do you know about that more from a policy perspective now? I think from the child perspective, they know what we mean by bullying. They see bullying happening. For a small number, it happens to them. And there were a few in the class that had been bullied. But they're also concerned about a whole host of activity that they think adults are kind of missing. A lot of judging, criticising, including and leaving out feeling that they might be misunderstood, worry about getting things wrong, how to express themselves. There's a lot of communication that 
can be hostile and can be anxiety provoking and leads them to be sometimes careful and sometimes rash and sometimes get into trouble. But it doesn't kind of come under that umbrella of bullying. And I worry sometimes when I see policymakers saying, well, we're dealing with bullying. This is the definition. This is what we're dealing with. And not addressing that wider environment of being networked, being seen, knowing that what you put out there might stay there for a long time or get shared in unpredictable ways. So, you know, the child's perspective, it's a bit less well-defined and it brings benefits as well as harms for them, whereas the policymaker is, you know, in the harm world. And sometimes rightly so, because what I see from the national surveys and the policy perspective is that a small number of children find the internet such a difficult place because they're bullied or harassed in various ways that it becomes really harmful for them. And maybe there's one or two in each class. And that's the hard thing. And most of them are figuring it out, becoming resilient, working out strategies which takes time and they need support but isn't catastrophic. And then for a few, it's catastrophic and very hard to find which ones really need the support. Yeah, there was that recent study, you've probably seen it, which found that about half of British 14-year-old girls say that they've been harassed in some way online. I think boys is far lower than that. But why is it so widespread online? Is it because it's easier for them to hide or because they don't have to take ownership for it? We actually don't know. We don't really know how much of this happened before. And the interesting thing about the internet is it makes it all visible. So now we can see... When you compare bullying surveys and harassment surveys over the years, it's not obvious that there's more, but that it gets more spread. In other words, it's not obvious that there's more victims, but it's much more visible because it's more spread and so many people see it. And that, as you say, absolutely adds a layer of harm in ways that makes it worse because it can be anonymous. It can happen so fast Images or hostile comments can get spread really quickly and no individual has to take responsibility. It might be a whole host of different comments from different people that just say, "Okay, here's our target. Everyone goes for one person and no individual has to feel they've done anything terrible. But the overall effect on the victim is terrible. And so speaking of what's going on in Britain, the government recently released a green paper on its internet safety strategy. Do you think government is doing enough? And who else's responsibility is it? Should Facebook, which owns Instagram and Google, which owns YouTube, Twitter, should these people also be contributing to solving these problems for kids? Absolutely. And that is what the government's new internet safety strategy says. So There's been various strategy statements over the last 10 years when we've really moved into the social media world. And I could wish that maybe if the strategy had come earlier, we wouldn't be quite where we are now. But it does say industry, especially social media companies, must come up with a code of guidance that shows how they deal with what it is that young people are experiencing online because they can do something about the way in which it's so rapidly spread. They can do something about the underage children who are using the internet before they're really kind of wised up to some of the practices that go on. They're the ones who can take down images and harassing messages when they're reported to them. No one else has that power. It has to be the industry. It has to be in cooperation with the industry. And what the government is saying, which I think a lot of child rights and child welfare folk are also saying, is this has to be done in a way that's transparent. It can't just be the companies saying, you know, we don't like this speech or that speech. It's got to be transparent, accountable. There's got to be kind of processes of redress. 
And I think that's the government's role, you know, that they kind of manage that accountability process. And they've also, it needs to be compliant. We need to see that it works because children and parents and even teachers, I think, have got to the point of thinking, we know the companies could do something. We don't really see them doing it consistently. So we don't trust them. And that's a problem on many sides. Yeah. And then the other thing is big companies like Facebook and Google may be putting in a lot of money, but really children are moving on to other platforms, right? Because I don't know about you, but when I was talking to kids over the last six months, it was mostly just Snapchat, Snapchat, especially in the early teen years. And these companies are just nowhere, you know, it's because government seems to be a bit behind thinking it's still Facebook everywhere. And like, I think the companies are often behind. I mean, one of the interesting things about the kind of internet space is that it's often really little startups who don't know that they're going to catch the kind of teen moment and become the new social media that the adults don't know about. So they're not ready. And there's a kind of problematic pattern. I don't know that we quite know how to solve it, where as a new startup realises it's got lots of teens on its platforms and gaining lots of complaints and perhaps some bad publicity, then they bring in some safety strategy and then the kids go somewhere else. So the government's idea is that there should be a code of practice for all the companies. And perhaps it's feasible to try to catch the little startups and say, think about safety, think about privacy, think about ethics as you begin. Of course, they think about lots of other things like branding and reach and so on. So why not think about safety too? Whether it's going to be possible to identify all those different companies when they're really new and make them realise there is a code of practice in this country, you do need to follow it, you do need to work with government and others. That's the challenge. And I think that's where there's some anxieties that the strategy might not work as well as hoped. Do you think it is a good idea to have like a voluntary levy or basically to be quite proactively legislative towards these companies rather than leaving it to them to come up with their own strategy? and then government supporting them. I would like the government to have some more power to ensure that the companies act. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of mechanism the government might be able to set up that ensures that the companies act in a way that is accountable and transparent and has systems of address. The levy, as I understand it, is because it is just so expensive to do awareness raising. And it is all the parents and children in the country who need to know about the latest risk or the latest practice or the latest social media app. So somebody has to pay for it. And there are levies that work well in other sectors. So perhaps it's not terrible to ask these very profitable companies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So I recently yeah. went along to an event that Facebook did with Childnet and the Diana Award. And so they had lots of secondary school kids in there to raise awareness about bullying. But they also announced that they would provide resources and some money, about a million pounds to the two charities across a couple of years, I think, to train children themselves to be the go-to people in a school so other kids can go to them. What do you think about that idea? Do you think that the research does show children will talk to other children? and more and that would have a better impact. The research shows that children will talk to other children. They'd definitely rather talk to them than parents or teachers. 
it's equivocal on whether that helps. So there's quite a lot that needs to be done in terms of training the peer mentors and providing them support. You know, a child who's victimised is often a vulnerable child, is often a child who has lost their kind of friends and contacts and lost their trust in others. So it won't reach all of those kids. You know, there's two kinds of people we want to reach. One is the victims, so they get supported, but the other is to change the practices of everybody else so they don't act as bystanders who don't get involved, they don't see bad things happening and fail to act. There are the two audiences there. I think it's fantastic that Facebook's giving a million to each of these companies. I don't think it's enough. And even though they'll reach thousands of children that way, there are many thousands who may not be reached. So the only secure mechanism really is by ensuring that peer mentoring, if that's the best strategy, is really anchored into the safeguarding strategy of every school and the kind of national safeguarding framework. And also that it's written into the PSHE curriculum. And that is, I think, also part of the government strategy, that the school curriculum that deals with personal and social and health matters really addresses and recognises the risks of the online environment. One of the other major concerns that at least I came across amongst parents is that social media causes a lot of distraction, a lot of it is quite vapid and superficial, and it really affects kids' ability to focus. What are your thoughts on that? The research doesn't yet demonstrate that children can't concentrate as they used to or that they're suffering in various ways through multitasking, always looking at their screen. But I think there is beginning to be more research that does say that. And intuitively, I think everyone knows the value of concentration and you know being quiet when you're doing your homework. So again, it's a problem that needs lots of different kinds of responses. One, I know there are efforts to work with the companies not to have all the pinging and reminders on by default, to have them off by default. And then people can turn on and decide which apps they want to keep pinging and scrolling up their screen and which ones they don't need to be reminded about the whole time. So people do have a choice. But if what's on by default is constant reminders and interruptions, that becomes the norm more easily than if it's off by default. I think also there are beginning to be some kind of apps that enable kids to concentrate. Maybe those can work. But we shouldn't take it too far. You know, parents and teachers have complained about 13-year-olds not paying attention through human history. And teachers have complained that their class is distracted. Parents have said, you know, where is his or her head? She's not paying any attention to me. Young people, in terms of their attention, they're often taking themselves away from what they experience as quite pressured situations, quite pressured and intense school situations where there's a lot of academic demands on them, quite demanding home situations where there can be all kinds of stresses, all kinds of anxieties. So part of that adolescent distraction is what they need. And if they achieve it by looking at their phone and reminding themselves that their friends are chatting, even though the conversation isn't terribly important it connects them back with their friends with who they are it makes them feel there are people there for them so I don't want to idealize all of that endless digital chat but I don't want us to expect young people to be constantly attentive and ready to do what it is that adults think they should be doing yeah but a lot of parents say that taking away a phone causes this extreme reaction and it's almost like an addiction and you know, when they go on holiday and there's no phones, then it takes a couple of days for them to readjust. So do you see that kind of addiction to devices starting really early? And it's not just kids. I mean, adults 
experience it too. I've been told by my husband I have it. (laughs) And parents do it too. Yeah, I think it's a difficult one because as a society, we have moved almost everything onto that extraordinary device. You know, we have moved our banking, our work, our shopping, our friends, our sex lives, our, you know, we've moved everything onto this phone. No wonder that we stare at it a lot. So for teenagers, they do see an adult world of people walking down the street staring at the phone. We do legitimate that as a practice for them. And then some of what it has is on you know some of what's being shown on screen the whole time is important and a lot of it isn't so a lot of what they're doing is monitoring is this going to be the message I was waiting for no it's just the girls chatting or whatever so we perhaps all need to role model ways of being in situations and not always looking at our phones but we also need to recognize that young people are looking at it for a reason and maybe let them look at it and then ask for their attention in a conversation or ask them to put it aside while they do their homework. You know, I think that there's also research showing, yeah, we need periods of concentration. We need to mix different ways of interacting with the world, not always the one way through the phone. So do you have a top tip for parents about how they do that? Because <laughs> that's probably the hardest thing to implement. Well, perhaps what might work recognising how many children are beginning to say, I wish my parents would look at me without taking a photo or I wish they would talk to me without glancing at their phone. You know, maybe sit down together and have a conversation about how many apps have you got that are pinging and sending messages all the time and should we change our settings together so that I'm less distracted and you're less distracted and we know that just the important ones will come through. You know, maybe it can be a kind of shared challenge. Yeah. That's interesting. So we've been talking a lot about kids in Britain and, you know, maybe that applies to kids in the US or other similar Western countries. But you've got this really interesting project, the Global Kids Online Project, looking at kids in the global south. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how kids there are exactly the same or completely different in their behaviours? Yes, delighted. It's a crazily ambitious project, really, to try to think about global kids online. But kids are going online in every country in the world. And of course, in many global South countries, they are really you know, a much larger proportion of the population than they are in Europe and America, up to 50% in some countries. So the internet users in the global South are a very young population. And it's also much newer So I think what that means is that a lot of children in the Global South are going online as the first generation, without teachers who understand, often without parents who understand, often in circumstances where getting access is quite hard and expensive. So one pattern that we see across countries is when kids first go online, it's often on a shared device or in a cyber cafe, an internet cafe, or on a kind of pay-for-use. And then gradually, as it gets more familiar in a society, It becomes more of a personal ownership. It becomes easier to access, more constantly connected. So across Latin America, for example, that's really been the trend. I think in Europe or in Britain, we're really used to seeing kids going online with the support of their teachers and parents. And that isn't always the case in many other countries. And in some of the countries we're working in, we're hearing about parents being quite punitive. So children will see pornography online, but In many contexts, parents will be very heavy-handed about that, and that 
creates a context of distrust where the children won't go to the parents. So I think there's, you know, a lot of challenges in finding ways for this technology that kids are beginning to access to be really beneficial to them because they do need guidance from parents and teachers to really make it beneficial without those same adults being punitive and judgmental and really, really anxious. So different contexts, you know, more intense challenges in a way. What work are you doing in these countries and where is this project? Uh, The project at the moment, we've been working in South Africa, in the Philippines, in Argentina. We now are working in Ghana. We're discussing the possibility of survey work in India and in China, both enormous countries to try to do work in. So probably, you know, specific regions we'll see. It's a project that's jointly run with UNICEF and UNICEF does have, you know, very good presence in lots of global South countries. So the ambition is that we combine the research with work with their country offices to engage policymakers and practitioners so that the research finds a local or a national strategy and ways of trying to make a difference. You know, some of the strategies we were talking about in this country are really hugely needed in many other parts of the world. What's the goal of the research? The research is trying to understand, I suppose, what is the common experience, what is shared by children across the world so that we understand their situation and we can use what we've learned, let's say what we've learned in Brazil to apply in Argentina and how far are children's experiences contextually specific. In other words, we shouldn't take what we've learned in Brazil to apply to Argentina or what we've learned in South Africa to apply to Ghana. You know, I think we just don't know what's shared, what's nationally or culturally specific. And then when we understand that, to find a way really to support children's rights in the digital environment. And the advantage of thinking about it in terms of children's rights is that it makes you think about the benefits that the internet can bring them for their learning, for their chance to participate, to be part of their community, but also in ways in which you need to protect them from the risks. And it's that joint framework, I think, that we're really hoping to build. Yeah, I think it'd be really fascinating because, for example, India and China and India, they've leapfrogged quite a lot of technologies that we've used as step ladders here in the West. So people actually much more mobile, much earlier than we have been here, like with for example, banking and things like that. So I assume it's similar with children. And in China, they're so much more advanced in terms of what they're doing on mobile. Absolutely. I mean, that's the story of the Global South. You know, forget the grey desktop computer that came home from work. It's straight to the mobile. So I think the kinds of questions in my mind are, is a mobile phone in the hands of a child empowering or is it a new kind of risk? And it can really be a risk for them. How can parents and other adults trying to safeguard a child look after them when they can't see what's on the screen and they don't necessarily have access to it like they did with the desktop? Can a child be as creative on a phone as they can be on a device that has a keyboard? And can they really make their own content? Or does the mobile kind of push them back to being much more passive recipients of content that others have made? I think we don't know about that. You know, in some very poor contexts, is the phone much less about just chat and entertainment and gaming and much more about finding health resources or finding information resources or finding opportunities for work. Children have a lot of needs that the phone really could deliver, but we have some evidence that children are looking for health information or for study information or for local community information. What we don't have yet is evidence that they're finding it. 
So as a final kind of thought, because the big debate has always been, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? We just want to know either way. Is it ruined our children's brains forever or is this going to make them much more productive and creative? What's your feeling on which side this falls on? I know it's a little bit of both, but are you optimistic and why? Do you know, I'm quite optimistic about what the phone is offering for them because I see how much they have really been like waiting for an opportunity to connect and engage. I'm pessimistic about what they're finding online in terms of is it really going to benefit them? I think each society probably will find a way of sorting out the pornography and the bullying and, you know, we will get a grip on that. Strategies will get put in place Will there be inspiring content online for kids? Will there be imaginative content? You know, is it like the book, of which I think we would say, yes, the book has been a good thing because most of the content's great, they're not all. Or will it be like the cinema where we're more ambivalent because there's a lot of violent films and pornographic films as well as art films or interesting films or thoughtful, empathetic, whatever, creative films? Or is the balance even tipped in a worse direction? And I think we really need a lot of great content providers to be not just maximally monetizing children. And that's what I see happening at the moment. Like everyone sees youth and children as the new market to make the maximum amount of money on. You know, we need to build children's chances in a more public spirited way. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.